readers and friends, a quick reminder that this week's episode is also available on YouTube where you can see Alexis and me act a fool. So go ahead and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else, and even YouTube for a video version of this podcast. And let's start the show. A teenage boy is caught in the commission of a crime and hauled off to reform school. While there, he attempts to protect a fellow student from harm and makes plans to reveal the school's dark secrets. The teenage boy, Elwood Curtis. The book, The Nickel Boys. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! readers this is alexis and this is kari and you're listening to lit society a podcast about books and drama yeah yeah kari to hey. kick the show off why don't you tell me something you did for fun start there okay um for fun this week i um i oh i made mole for the first time and it was truly oh. therapeutic it Does took it hours have like a little chocolate in that yeah yep Yep, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Um, So that was, um, yeah, it was cool. I felt like you. Like, look at me cooking and being competent. Stop it. It was nice. (laughs) So, yeah. I I noticed you didn't share that with me at all. I have some in my freezer just for you. Mm -hmm. But you ain't getting it now because you got an attitude. (laughs) But I did. I put some aside for you. You know we always got it. You so nice. I am. Mm-hmm. That sounds really. That sounds really cool. I love trying new ingredient, new recipes, as you yeah. know. Yeah, and, and I was kind of in a rut with like everything I cook, so this was nice to mix it up. But yeah. for fun, um, I put on these lashes today just for you, and I feel oh. very 2018. Okay, get into it. 2018, because <laughs> we like four years yeah. later now. Oh, three, it's three. Crazy. But that's okay. It works. It works. It works. (laughs) What about you? What'd you do this week for fun? What one thing did you do? And what one thing did you do for self-care? What I did for fun is I went to the library. Okay. That was fun. It was pretty cool. The setup they have, um, you can only pick up and drop off books. (laughs) So you, you walk in, you drop your books off and then you follow the path and pick up your books and then you head out. It's so easy. I loved it. You just locate your book by name. I I loved it. And for um, self care I, I bought a book a planner oh. that um helps you focus on self-care so it's going to teach me it's a planner so i do my regular planning stuff but incorporated in my planning is teaching myself to be uh, to care for myself more so i love that, I love that and i'm looking forward to using it and the way you describe the library girl that's just how libraries work you walk in, return <laughs> your book, and then go pick up one. But I like that it's novelty for you right now because the coronavirus. <laughs> Forget you. Anyway, moving on, okay. moving on. It's time for Society Says, mm-hmm. where we share your comments with the rest of our lit society. Kari, yes. did you find a comment that was particularly litty? I did. This one is from Instagram. I'm all in your neighborhood these days. Just hanging out. <laughs> Just hanging out. 
And this is from Lev Summies, L-E-B-S-U-M-M-I-E-S. And she says, I feel like I enjoy your podcast more than I enjoy reading some of these books. <laughs> Loki, so do we. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she continues, now I have to go and read this book. That was Daisy Jones and the Six, uh, just so I know how it ends. In somewhat related news, I'm going to be the girl in the bookshop reading the last page of Daisy Jones and the Six. <laughs> Because I cannot deal, she says. So thank you, Love Summies. I love that. Thank you so much for listening to our show. We had a blast. Yeah, thank that you. Episode. Yeah. That episode. That was, was a really lot of fun. fun. Mm-hmm. What about that you? Did fun. you find a, a comment particularly particularly lit? Yes. Yes, I did. I stepped out onto um, the Twitterverse. Okay. All and right. I found a, a, a comment from Colored Pages Book Club oh, podcast. podcast. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And... They said, shout out to Atlas Society Pie for making the hours I just spent meal prepping hilarious, all caps, Ooh. and insightful. Y'all got me wanting to crack open, and then there were none. And they included Ooh. some laughing with tears emoji. So thank you for that comment. Loved yeah, it very yeah, much. Thank Loved you. Much. I need to meal prep, actually. They just reminded me. I like know. an adult. I, I got a plan for that and we'll talk about it in another episode and I figured okay. out what is going to save me because, you know, being at home, well, just all the time in general, you spend a lot of money on food yeah. and I have figured out the plan. Okay, Meal prepping it. is the answer. Well, readers, remember <laughs> to have your comments shared. Message us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or, and we especially love this one, <laughs> leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Do okay? it, do it. <laughs> hmm yes. And moving on to our theme of the week. Ooh, I can't Each. wait just where I can just sit back and drink my coffee. Like, literally. <laughs> I'm going to be talking. Ooh. Each week, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book that we're reading. The theme that was chosen for this week is the history of reform schools. It's a very brief history, so I am going to share it. Okay, you guys ready for this information? Ready. Okay, I need an audience. <laughs> you are my audience, Whoa! so you engage me, okay? I I'm going to need you. This. In America... In the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, people started to take issue with the um, juvenile offenders being put in adult facilities and being treated like adult criminals. Their concern was that these juveniles were often put in a position to be abused physically or sexually and exploited by older inmates. Additionally, instead of receiving the support to walk away from a life of crime, the older inmates were giving these juveniles instructions on how to be more advanced, um, how to get involved in more advanced and more serious crimes. So instead of the sentences actually deterring them, it made them worse when they entered the system. And, and that's just not what the what they wanted. So they realized that they needed a separate code and a court for those who hadn't reached 18. So they created reform schools. And the purpose was for the school to actually um, rehabilitate as opposed to being a punitive. And they were supposed to learn a skill or trade that could they could leave with and, you know, become contributing members of society. They wanted to avoid um, labeling these children as criminals and pushing them into a, an adult prison systems. Juveniles that were 
orphaned actually became custody of the school, whereas most juveniles would, I believe it said they received sentences of like six months to five years. And as I mentioned, those that were orphaned, they they would stay there until they reach whatever the age of majority was at that time. And so they could be um, sent to these reformatories, mostly if they got caught stealing or um, I think homeless kids were sent there, too. In the United Kingdom, they created these industrial schools that were for vulnerable children to prevent them from going into crime. And that, again, that focused on um, vulnerable children, those that were homeless, those, you know, they were poor and neglected children. These are the ones that were pushed into those schools. And again, they focused on teaching the students a skill so that they could work. But they also had what they call these borstos. And those schools were focused primarily on punishment. So depending on what your behavior was, you could be sent to either or. And um, in America in the 1950s and 60s, many of the same problems that were happening in the um from incarcerating these juveniles with adults, they begin to see them with the reform schools. So over older from juveniles. Which, oh, from older juvenile. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Over older, excuse me, mm-hmm. older juveniles were exploiting the younger ones. It's a big they difference were, between 13 and 16. Mm-hmm. And then they were also... And they were exploiting them and abusing them sexually or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And the younger ones um, were taking on this more hardened attitude. And, and they would see these adult, excuse me, the older um, juveniles as more um, role models and mentors. And then it seemed that in these reform schools, they were focused on more punishment than rehabilitation. So there was abuse throughout the school and the juveniles were being not only abused by the older juveniles, but they were being abused by the staff who worked there as well. So whatever their background, the bullies was turning into bullies. Yeah, we see that in this book. I think it's really interesting that um, they focused on giving them the skills they needed to become productive members of society as if... um, Home people who end up homeless don't have skills. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> or, or children that turn to a life of crime lack skills needed to. Uh, you need more than skills. You, you're missing the point. <laughs> a lot right? of people got skills. <laughs> yeah. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, can you think about students? Maybe I don't know. When you were in high school, did you ever hear about kids going to reform no, schools? No, but I may have heard about some talk shows that would have scared straight programs where p- grown men would come and yell in children's faces and then take them off to boot camp. Mm-hmm. Because all these children need to be good kids was fear. <laughs> <laughs> And you it worked me? all the time. They would they would leave boot camp and just become like doctors, lawyers, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, chief of police. Well, they may have became the chief of police, but listen, <laughs> that's, Again, not, my that's face. not correction. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, no, I, I'm a familiar. Yeah. So the first publicly funded reform school in the U.S. was the state reform school for boys. And it was in Massachusetts. It opened in 1848 and it's um, later, sometime later, it changed its name to Lyman um, School for Boys and it closed in 1971. It, it it had the same problems as all these other reform schools did. When did it when open? It, 
1848. Oh, it was around a long time. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was around a long time. And there were other schools before the state reform school, but they were either private or cor- corporate run institutions. Today, reform schools are what? Juvenile correctional institutions. Mm-hmm. Every state has them and they um, refrain from calling them reform schools. They just don't say it. But the, pro- the approach today is to um, minimize the use of these institutions and maximize less restrictive settings that allow the youth to remain home and maybe um, spend time during the day in alternative schools. I, um, I'm sure you've heard of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we had um, students that had, I remember being in school where students had left to go to a reform, excuse me, um, alternative, An alternative school. I remember mm-hmm. um, girls getting pregnant and then going to alternative school yep. or just not having good grades and going to alternative school. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're out there. They're still making it. Um, they're out there. They're just called juvenile correctional institutions. And I actually heard, um, I feel like it was on This American Life and it truly focused on this one particular school. I want to say it was in either Iowa or Ohio. The worst. The stories were horrifying. You know, they're, they're kids that the, the kids in the school actually run the, uh, the staff. It's, mm. it's insane. It's insane. But very interesting facts, very scary. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with those, but. Um, well, we have a friend. I don't know if you know that worked in juvie and uh, yeah, his stories are horrific. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and the kids will like um, play staff against each other. Mm-hmm. And this is just, of course they do. <laughs> of course they do. Of- they do it to parents. If they, if they have parents, that's what they do. These are stupid people these these are just children yeah (laughs) you -hmm. know so uh yeah and one thing that sticks out in mind are these bombs that they make and they do this in adult uh uh yeah facilities also but they have like feces and urine in them and they call them dookie bombs (laughs) you know what i'm talking about Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they'll throw them at like staff or other students yeah yeah um so i actually uh, went to school for criminal justice um, so I wanted to work in the correctional system. Um, I can see that the way you be bossing me around. Oh, never mind. Sorry. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. You wanted to help the community. I, I wanted to help the community. Um, I, I, I decided not to do that after several visits <laughs> to um, the correctional <laughs> facility. Oh, yeah, yeah. Reality check. OK, can I so tell why? you I what, got one? What about your visit made you change your goals? Mm. I didn't want to work with them. I didn't want to be, I mean, I felt like I would have been housed in, the, this was a female, um, the women's, it wasn't juveniles, it was for adults. Oh, okay. And it, it was, um, I just didn't like the interactions mm-hmm. that we had while we okay. were there. And I won't go into that. But to I experience didn't like that them. on a daily basis, you knew that wasn't for you. Yeah, that mm-hmm. wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be for me, but I didn't want it to be for me. Okay, <laughs> I didn't want that. All right, okay. I didn't want that. Do you have any questions about the reform school information that I shared? Um, it, it reminds me how ill prepared uh, this society's systems are to care for down and out children, mm. and how when you're 
when you're um, <laughs> when you're poor and you're a child, you hear leaders talk about you and the people you know as if you're criminals just for being poor. Mm-hmm. Be careful because all these poor people are gonna come to your neighborhood if you don't make the right political mm-hmm. decisions mm-hmm. or finding homeless children on the street and throwing them in a place that is reserved for criminals. Yeah. Yeah. It is not a criminal. T- it is not a crime to be poor. Yeah. Period. It's just yeah. not. And and because you're poor doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't even mean that you've made the worst decisions with the tools that you have. It doesn't mean that you're not, um, you know, uh, that you lack tenacity and a hard work ethic. None of that is true. All it means is you're poor. <laughs> it just, it That's just all it means. means that you are poor. You know, the story of um, Oliver Twist. I don't really do Charles Dickinson, but I'm familiar. So, <laughs> so, but then there was Oliver Twist. There was Oliver the play. And there was, um, I know, please, sir, please, sir, may I have some more? And I know that all a poor kid has to do to make it in life is realize that he's related to very wealthy benefactors. <laughs> <laughs> so what Charles Dickens wrote that as a satire for the, um, the I think it was called the poor law back in 18 something. And yeah. so in um, England, yeah, in England. Yeah. Yep. So he wrote that a, a, um, as satire for that because it just was outrageous that you're just now criminalizing these poor people. And yeah. then the children, um, the the vagrancy of children, the children that are being, uh, you know, neglected and in the streets are now being. Or whose parents are dying because of de- diseases that diseases. are mm-hmm. prominent because of lack of sanitary uh systems in certain societies anyway just victimizing the victim it's disgusting and to see it done to children is a real flashlight on what society really cares about you can say (laughs) when you can ignore stuff like this happening to kids Mm -hmm. yep Mm -hmm. well that was our theme of the week reform well i'm down and um (laughs) i want to take a quick break after that me too so i can go cry okay let's do it great Would you like to introduce us oh. to our author, Colson Whitehead, and maybe share some context about the book? Okay, I will. Born in New York City in 1969, I think his first name legally is Arch. It may be Ark, but I'm pretty sure it's Arch, like Archie. Arch Colson Chip Whitehead is one of four children of two successful parents who owned an executive firm. And this business allowed the parents to um, put their children in elite private schools, travel and spend um, summers in Long Island Village, a vacation spot for like affluent black movers and shakers. And that's the environment he grew up in. You know, his household wasn't perfect. um, But in this aspect, he was um, privileged. So Mm -hmm. he grew up on the island of Manhattan, attended the elite Trinity prep school and graduated from the prestigious Harvard University. Okay. You may have heard of it. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. Yep. He also enjoyed a short stint in a band named Jose Cuervo and the Salty Lemons. 
So he's well-rounded. <laughs> In my mind, it's a mariachi band, and I love it. So here we go. I would like you to repeat the name of that just yeah, one that's more time. Ho- that's Jose Cuervo and the Salty Lemons. I'm sure they would have made it bigger if not for the uh, trademark and copyright laws. <laughs> So he has written seven novels, two nonfic mm-hmm, works. Mm-hmm. He holds a National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize for fiction for his novel, The Underground Railroad, which I like to put on our list this year. Mm-hmm. Remind me. And, mm-hmm. and another Pulitzer for the book we're covering today. Okay. Um, he's just collecting Pulitzers. Yes. So <laughs> so the book we're covering today is The Nickel Boys. Um, judges of the prize of the Pulitzer called the novel The Nickel Boys a spare and devastating exploration of abuse at a reform school in Jim Crow era Florida that is ultimately a powerful tale of human perseverance, dignity, and redemption. So Whitehead Whitehead is one of only Yeah me too Yeah I can see that Um, They're really long winded over there at Pulitzer But I get it Um, I know people like that a spare and devastating exploration Yep that's that's right though You know people (laughs) like that I feel Mm -hmm. personally attacked Moving on Whitehead is one of only four writers in history To have won the prize twice Wow In 2019 Yeah right Um, Well he's obviously not just a child of a privileged education. He is a hard worker and a bit of a genius. Mm. So in 2019, Time Magazine featured Whitehead on their cover for an American, America's storyteller. That's what it said on the cover. America's storyteller as they deemed him. And a Mm. quote from the article that I like to share is this. If greatness is excellence sustained over time, then without question, Whitehead is one of the greatest of his generation. In fact, figuring his age, acclaim, productivity and consistency, he is one of the greatest American writers alive. In the article, Whitehead, this is end quote, in the article, Whitehead also reveals that he listens to Purple Rain while writing the final pages of his book. And I was like... That's why exactly. you so good. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Currently, he's working on Harlem Shuffle, his eighth novel scheduled to drop this year. Did you know anything about Whitehead before we read this book? No, I did not. Is you, as you <laughs> not a thing, Mimi. Like to attack me. I don't know much about black authors. So. <laughs> yeah, we learned you don't know nothing about black authors from the first episode of the season. Two episodes ago, if y'all need receipts. It's a shame. (laughs) No, just kidding. You did great on that uh, game we played. But Mm. the point is, yeah, we didn't know about Colson. And he's been out here making things happen for, he's like in his 50s. And he's, one thing that's the all these like great writers we learn about have in common is they treat writing like a job. They're not waiting for inspiration. They wake up at a certain time and write. (laughs) It's work. And And then put in the work. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, and mm-hmm. they have the habit of consistently uh, writing. So yep. that's Colson Whitehead, or uh, Arch Colson Chip Whitehead, as he's known. His, his government to his name. Mama. You, you put his yeah. government name all mm-hmm. out there for that's everybody right. to mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. It was in Time Magazine. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing that bit of information yeah. about Mr. Whitehead. Now, why don't you give us a brief synopsis without spoilers before our deep dive. Okay, I would love to. The Nickel Boys tells the story of a promising young student blessed with a sharp mind and an innocent heart. 
plucked from the brightest future and thrown into the dark demonic dungeons reserved for America's unwanted and forgotten children in the Jim Crow South. He must face an unending test of his will, character and capacity to suffer until one decision cements his future and the future of the one person closest to him. With a storyline and dialogue inspired by true accounts, it is more real and vivid than reality. Mm. What were your first? That was written pretty well. I, I, can I just say that? Let me pause. Stop the press. That was really good. I was all intrigued and stuff. Mm-hmm. Me too. I was like, oh, what book is this? Mm. Let's get into it. No, okay, what, so was what, you were your first th- what was your first thoughts of the Nickel Boys? So when I first heard the title, I was thinking, yeah, I, I'd like to read about a boy band. That, w- that would be great. That would be boy really band. good. Yeah, boy band. We still and then, stuck on Daisy Jones in the six. <laughs> and this then you, obviously a Motown group. Ooh. <laughs> and then you started talking about some things, and I was like, "Oh, that's oh, that's not a boy band." Um, yeah, I said, well, "Get ready to be depressed." <laughs> I said, "Well, let's, let's just see what this book is about." So yeah, that's that's what I was thinking. That was uh, that's what I was thinking. So who would this book be a good read for? Who would love this book? Yeah. Uh, re- <laughs> I would say readers who are looking to better understand America's history with not just black people, but children and the poor will love this book. Mm, a little history. A little history. Yeah, I like that. That's a good thought. Yeah, because well, history informs our present. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Are you ready to take this deep dive? I'm ready. Let's okay. go. I'm ready mm. to hear all you got to offer. Okay, you it. ready? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Two quick warnings. First, as usual, our deep dive will contain spoilers. So if you haven't read the book, please know that there will be spoilers in our discussion. And second, this is a content warning. We are going to talk about sexual assault. And although we don't get into too much detail, you should know that this book does touch on these subjects. Okay, here we go. We're going to start with the prologue. All the boys knew about the graves, that rotten spot. But it took a University of Florida student to bring it to the rest of the world's attention decades after the last boy was thrown in a potato sack and dumped there. In order to repurpose the land, the remains of the children had to be relocated and archaeology students needed the credits. So they did the work. By this time, the school had been closed for three years. The photographs of the now abandoned school captured the horror of it when active. Each student who left that school, Mm -hmm. some of them old now, were damaged, each in their own way. They never fit into society and they stood outside of it constantly with their stories. Of 43 bodies, seven remained unnamed. The students piled the white crosses into a pile, these archaeology students. But when they returned the next day, someone had smashed that pile to pieces. Mm. Um, So this is the very non-fic story of the Dozier School in Florida. And this is the scene that um, Colson Whitehead is setting with actual uh, documented evidence. It was, he, he was writing this book, I think when this expose was going on. Um, so this is straight from the news. And uh, he also interviewed some of the old students, I think, or at least read, not interviewed them, read their firsthand accounts in this expose by the Florida university that, that wrote it. And I, I think that, but go back and look, but anyway, it's all real. 
So let's get into our fictional story based on this real account. Part one, Elwood was a good boy. Mm. Elwood received the best gift of his life in 1962. A turntable, you guys. <laughs> Martin Luther King's sermon at Zion Hill was the only record he owned because his grandmother was raising him and she was a church woman that only played gospel. None of that secular foolishness. Mm, that okay. R&B and stuff. None of that. <laughs> None of that soul and uh-uh. funk. So all he would listen to was Dr. Martin Luther King. But the ideas King put into Elwood's head were the boys undoing in the end. They were words of truth. There was an amusement park, for example, named Funland in Atlanta in those days. It was segregated, made for white children. On the record, Martin Luther King spoke of how he had to tell his own children, even though you can't go to Funtown, I want you to know you're as good as anybody that goes to Funtown. And these words made Elwood feel like one of King's children, too, because like he was part of his family because he wanted to go to Funtown, too. (laughs) (laughs) The ads for the amusement park um, boasted that if you had a perfect report card, that was all you needed for free admission. And Elwood had that. He was smart and he applied himself, but he still couldn't go only because he was black. Mm-hmm. Side note, Chicago, too, had a fun town and it was one of the last amusement parks in the city. Hey, Mama. Hey, Daddy. Let's go to fun town. Fun town, fun town for the kids and you. 95th and Stony Island Avenue. Fun sounds like a great time for all really? at Fun Town, Chicago's mm-hmm. largest amusement park. This yeah, a few years ago when he was only nine, Elwood um, would spend time with the men in the kitchen uh, while his grandmother cleaned hotels. Well, one hotel specifically. And the men were hard, the men in the kitchen of that hotel. Uh, they were a little bitter and they looked down on Elwood for walking around, getting patted on the head by the owner while they busted their butts in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of like jealous of this boy who didn't have to work. Like they were, he was just there hanging out with his grandma and the owner, like three, two generations of their family had worked at the hotel and the owner kind of felt some, mm, it's that type of attachment that isn't for your friends, but for property that you love or pets. So the owner like was like, boy, when you get old enough, you can work at my hotel too. Right. So anyway, uh, the men in the kitchen also noticed, though, that Elwood was innocent and a hard worker. So when the boy turned 12, they presented a challenge to him. We will give you a full set of encyclopedias, little smart boy, if you can beat Pete in a dishwashing game. And Elwood was like, oh, boy, my own set of encyclopedias. (laughs) Um, The things people get excited about. But also, this is something that was left behind in a hotel room. Yeah, and, and it's a time when kids would be excited for encyclopedias. They mm-hmm. had internet. So Elwood couldn't imagine having his own full set of encyclopedias. Just the possibility made his heart race. I, I know that feeling. I'd be excited yeah. about <laughs> I remember. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the men told him that the stack was left by one of the rich uh, white guests and they gave him one book to look through and he squinted to see the tiny wording. It was like a brick gilded in gold Mm. eagerly he accepted the challenge elwood hadn't lost a dish drying contest in five years Mm. pete almost took him but elwood won by one plate he won the contest he couldn't (laughs) believe it the kitchen (laughs) laughed and laughed and the men exchanged glances elwood would understand later Mm -hmm. at home he cleared the shelf and put the books 
in their proper places and just looked at them. They were perfect. He took one book down and looked inside. The pages were blank. The leather on them was fake too. He'd been so proud of his ability and they all knew, all those men knew that he was getting a dummy set. They knew and they laughed. Now Elwood worked at the local corner store. His grandmother let him. I'm sorry if I can say. No, please. He he never went back. He stopped going to that place after that because he knew those people were laughing at him and taking advantage of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it opened his eyes to Mm -hmm. how they really felt about him. Yeah. I mean, those were the only men in his life. Right. So that was like disappointing. Um, So now Elwood works at the local corner store. His grandmother let him work there in part because he was saving for college. And she was supremely proud of the possibility of someone in her family attending higher education. Brown versus education was an unlikely turn, but little Elwood was an unlikely miracle. Mm. So the neighborhood parents held him up as an example for their children, um, which didn't, you know, gain him any friends in yeah, the neighborhood. Yeah, you don't get friends like that. You do <laughs> no. not. Parents be setting you up for the okie doke when <laughs> they, they do that. <laughs> Why can't you be more like Elwood, Mm-mm. dummy? Mm-mm. Comparison. I'm going to go beat up Elwood. Elwood is, I'm going to show you Elwood, okay? Mm-hmm. Your favorite. You like him? Okay, I got Mm -hmm. him. So to make money after school, Elwood would work at this local corner store out of principle. His mother and grandmother had worked for a local hotelier. That's what we uh, said earlier. A white man who was always good to Elwood's family and wanted the boy to work for him. Um, But something about adding a third generation of cleaners to the hotel made Elwood uncomfortable in a way he couldn't Mm -hmm. explain. Mm -hmm. So he disappointed that hotel owner by working for an Italian corner store owner instead. Elwood took his job seriously, though. He even got jumped once for stopping some boys from stealing, something Mm -hmm. the neighborhood kids did all the time (laughs) and something that the shop owner himself always overlooked. But Elwood was like, not today. (laughs) It was like... No, sir. Um, could you stop stealing? Because I work here. And right. that, that don't make me look good if you stealing. So stop it. So stop it. Not and meanwhile, it. the uh, the corner store owner was like, yeah, they steal, but then they grow up and shop here. So who cares? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, he, he admired Elwood's honesty and work ethic. So um, when Elwood was down, he would remember King's words. We are able to say to ourselves now that we do count. And I want to say to everybody under the sound of my voice this afternoon that you are somebody. Don't let anybody make you feel that you are nobody. You are somebody, you have dignity, you have worth. Don't be ashamed of yourself and don't be ashamed of your heritage. Don't be ashamed of your color. Don't be ashamed of your hair. I am black and beautiful and not ashamed to say it. The record went around and around like an argument that always returned to its unsalable premise. And Dr. King's words filled the front room of the shotgun house. Elwood bent to a code. Dr. King gave that code shape, articulation, and meaning. There are big forces that want to keep the Negro down, like Jim Crow. And there are small forces that want to keep you down, like other people. And in the face of all those things, the big ones and the small ones, you have to stand up straight and maintain your sense of who you are. The encyclopedias are empty. There are people who trick you and deliver emptiness with a smile. While others rob you of your self-respect, you need to remember who you are. The sense of dignity. 
the way the man said it, crackle and all, an inalienable strength. Even when consequences lay in wait on dark street corners on your way home, they beat him up and tore his clothes and didn't understand why he wanted to protect a white man. How to tell them that their transgressions against Mr. Marconi were insults to Elwood himself, whether it was a sucker candy or a comic book. Not because any attack on his brother was an attack on himself, like they said in church, but because for him to do nothing was to undermine his own dignity. No matter that Mr. Marconi had told him he didn't care. No matter that Elwood had never said a word to his friends when they stole in his presence. It didn't make no sense until it made the only sense. That was Elwood, as good as anyone. In high school, they received secondhand books from the white schools. Um, and when the white students found out where their books were going after, after they'd used them, they began to write messages for the black students inside of the books. Words like choke, nigger, you smell, die, nigger. And this is true. So I'm not going to shy away from what uh, would be written in those books. Anyway, you get the point. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. When Mr. Hill became a teacher... Elwood's junior year, he made the children start the school year blacking out these evil messages with a marker. And Elwood was like, how come nobody else made yeah. us think, do this? He was like, that's a really good idea. I think yeah. I this in my life. Mr. Hill was a force. He was an activist who um, would talk about the sit-ins he attended and the jail time he earned for protesting like it was nothing. Mm-hmm. And when Elwood snuck off to join a local protest, because, you know, his grandma wouldn't have been down with that. No. So Elwood snuck out. You know, some people go sneak out to go dance and Elwood sneaking out <laughs> to join a protest. It was probably. <laughs> and guess who was there? Mr. Hill. Quite a few children like that. And then Mr. Hill was like, something about you, kid. You smart, but you also down for the cause. <laughs> so uh, Mr. Hill visited him. Elwood at the corner store one day and told him about a program that would be perfect for him. Free college classes for exceptional students in the school. It was a program made, created for Elwood. Yeah. Mr. Hill thought. So the day before his first college class, his boss, the Italian man, gave him the gift of a fountain pen. Mm. Everybody was proud of Elwood. Yeah. The next day, his grandmother tried not to cry with pride before sending him off. And Elwood waited on the corner for a colored driver to take him to school. Um, so it's not like he could have called an Uber. Uh, there was no bus for him to take. So um, people would hitchhike and wait for a friendly face to take them in the direction of where they were going. And sure enough, a man pulled up, opened the door and Elwood got in. They were on their way and Elwood was headed toward his future. Oh, Quickly, though, everything came crashing down. A police officer pulled over the car and arrested both Elwood and the man for stealing the vehicle. Elwood went from heading to his first day of college to heading toward his first day at Nickel. Mm. Do you see how fast that happened? That was crazy. That is. That is. Part two. Not worth a nickel. Because he was only 14, Elwood wasn't headed to prison. He was headed to Nickel. The school was opened in 1899 as the Florida Industrial School for Boys, a reform school promising to turn wayward boys into upstanding citizens. The children were called students instead of inmates. So that's all you need for a school. When it opened, it admitted school children as young as five years old. For the free labor it produced, it was financially supported by the greater area of white families that surrounded it. 
uh, Florida white families. Mm. The black boys went to school up the hill and the white boys went to their school down the hill in this school nickel school system. The place was ran by men who liked to make threats. The chief among those was superintendent superintendent. Maynard Spencer, a white man in his late fifties who had a raccoon face with small nose and dark circles under his eyes. Every crease in his, every crease in his clothes looked sharp enough to cut. Elwood thought as if he were a living blade. Mm. The pillowcases. Yeah. Yeah. The descriptions in this book are really well done. Of course. Cause Colson Whitehead, the pillowcases smell like vinegar. And the showers smelled like rotten eggs. The water was smelled disgusting. Mm. On the surface, it did appear to be a real school. He may even be able to take specialized classes, he was thinking. Mm -hmm. The students explained. (laughs) Academic achievements had no bearing on graduation here. We play games. We take naps under the (laughs) eyes of lazy teachers. Mm -hmm. This ain't for learning. Mm Elwood was like, but I want to take advanced classes. And then one day his teacher was like, yeah, yeah, I'll look into it. (laughs) And he he asked again, what about my advanced classes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. advanced, we going to look into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Still principled, though. One day Elwood broke up a fight and was repaid with a punch to the face. Just as that punch happened, Phil Feel? How come I can't say it? Phil. (laughs) Just as Elwood was being punched, Phil, one of the White House men, was making his rounds. What are you little niggers up to? Mm. He asked. His job was not to find out what happened or why, but to keep the color boys in line. Mm. Keep the color boys in line was his only mission. So he brought the matter to Spencer, the superintendent. It was time for Elwood to visit the White House. Mm. So remember I said that the white boys go to school down the hill and the black boys go to school up the hill when they're being disciplined severely. Both sets of children go to the white house. The black kids call it the white. Well, the white kids call it the ice cream, like ice cream parlor or something something like that because of the way um, white skin bruises you leave there and you end up every color of ice cream. Mm. And the black kids called it the white house because it didn't need another name. (laughs) So the night before he was picked up, he received some advice from a fellow student. Don't move once it starts. Mm. Terrifying. He don't know what he's going into. We don't know as the reader at this point. And we still, we like Elwood. So we like, what's going to happen to Elwood? Exactly. Um, So Spencer and a houseman named Earl picked up Elwood and the other boys in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night and took them all to the former work shed that the boys called the White House. They parked behind it, and Spencer and his man took them in through the back, the beating entrance, the boys called it. Passing by the road out front, you'd never look twice. Spencer quickly found the key on his enormous key ring and opened the two padlocks. The stench was fierce, urine and other things that had soaked into the concrete. A single naked bulb buzzed in the hallway. Spencer and Earl led them past the two cells to the room at the front of the building where a line of bolted together chairs waited and a table. Right there was the front door. Elwood thought of running. He didn't. This place was why the school had no wall or fence or barbed wire around it. Why so few boys ran. It was the wall that kept them in. 
Spencer and Earl took Black Mike in first. Spencer said, thought you'd be done after last time. Earl said, piss himself again. The roar began, and even Gale. Elwood's chair vibrated with energy. He couldn't figure out what it was, some sort of machine, but it was loud enough to cover Black Mike's screams and the smack of the strap on his body. Halfway through, Elwood started counting, on the theory that if he knew how much the other boys got, he'd know how much he'd get, unless there was a higher system to how many each boy got. Repeat offender, instigator, bystander. No one had asked Elwood for his side of the story, that he was trying to break up the fight in the bathroom, but maybe he'd get less for stepping in. He counted up to 28 before the beating stopped and they dragged Black Mike out to one of the cars. Corey continued to sob, and when Spencer came back, he told him to shut his mouth, and they took Lonnie in for his. Lonnie got around 60. It was impossible to make out what Spencer and Earl said to him back there, but Lonnie needed more instructions or admonishments than his partner. They took Corey in for his, and Elwood noticed there was a Bible on the table. Corey got around 70. Elwood lost his place a few times, and it didn't make sense. Why did the bullies get less than the bullied? Now he had no idea what he was in for. It didn't make sense. Maybe they lost count too. Maybe there was no system at all to the violence, and no one, not the keepers nor the kept, knew what happened or why. Then it was Elwood's time. The two cells faced each other, separated by the hallway. The beating room had a bloody mattress and a naked pillow that was covered instead by the overlapping stains from all the mouths that had bit into it. Also, the gigantic industrial fan that was the source of the roaring, the sound that traveled all over campus, farther than physics allowed. Its original home was the laundry. In the summer, those old machines made an inferno. But after one of the periodic reforms where the state made up new rules about corporal punishment, someone had the bright idea to bring it in here. Splatter on the walls where the fan had whipped up blood in the gusting. There was a weird thing to the acoustics where the fan covered the boys' screams, but right next to it, you heard the staff's instructions perfectly. Hold on to the rail and don't let go. Make a sound and you'll get more. Shut your mouth, nigger. The strap was three feet long with the wooden handle, and they had called it Black Beauty since before Spencer's time, although the one he held in his hand was not the original. She had to be repaired or replaced ever so often. The leather slapped across the ceiling before it came down on your legs to tell you it was about to come down, and the bunk springs made noises with each blow. Elwood held on to the top of the bed and bit into the pillow but he passed out before they were done. So when people asked later how many licks he got, he did not know. Elwood's grandmother traveled to see him. They told her he was sick and couldn't take visitors. Mm -hmm. Elwood was in the hospital. In the hospital, still ran by the Nickel Boys uh, staff, I think. Right, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you ain't getting the best care here. Right. Um, but in the hospital, the cast of boys came and went as Elwood was healing. His clothes had to be removed surgically by a doctor. 
And the nurses treated him cold. There were white boys and black boys in this hospital. So they would fawn over the white children and treat the black children like dirt. Right. To Elwood's side, side to the bed in the bed next to him was a kid who ate a whole box of soap just to get a day off from school. Mm. Their care was a joke. Everything was pills. The kid eating soap was named Turner. And he was like, look, <laughs> nickel is intense. OK, <laughs> people are mean. They rape kids yep. that, you know, they beating you. I need a day off. Mm-hmm. So I ate a box of soap. What's the worst could happen? I die <laughs> and leave nickel forever. I ain't going to die. I'm going to get this day off with some tummy problems. <laughs> Poor baby. They're just mm-hmm. children. Yep. And Turner was like, look, Elwood, you about as green as grass. So let me school you to some things. First of all, you broke up a fight that everyone else ignored. Dummy. Why do you think you why? Why do you think uh, that happened? (laughs) Those bullies always pick on that kid, drag him into the stall and make him get on his knees. And everyone else looks away. So when you when you took action, it was like a rebuke, not just against those kids, not just against the bullies, but on everyone that let it happen. And that was trouble. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is like Turner is like also. Explaining how society as a whole looks on crime. <laughs> if we didn't say life. it was wrong, don't you say it's wrong because then you saying we wrong and we ain't going to stand for it. You making us look bad by calling out these By being issues. right. Yeah. Stop being and we right. we don't like that at all. <laughs> so stop it. Number two, Turner had never seen someone beat as badly as Elwood had been. But still, Elwood had gotten off easy because sometimes they take boys to the White House and those boys never come back. The school tells their families that they ran away. Mm. So I ain't never seen nobody with their clothes stuck inside of them because they've been beat so badly like you. Like you look really bad and I know you can't use your legs. This is all bad. I'm not taking anything away from you, but you're alive. <laughs> so so you, you're like the worst beating I've ever seen because the other ones were dead. So, yay. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, <laughs> Back at home, Elwood has people that love him. So his grandmother is working with a lawyer. Um, Elwood wrote to his school teacher, Mr. Hill, and he was hoping to get out. In the meantime, he'd read books he found while cleaning the basement of the school. Um, And in this way, he taught himself English literature, the college course he was supposed to be taking. So his heart is still in um, bettering himself, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Or fulfilling his potential, that's what I should say. Turner, his newfound friend, recommended Elwood to Harper, a white man who worked in community service. Um, Harper used to be a student at Nickel, and then he graduated and started working for Nickel. Okay, so soon the three of them were off in a gray van that didn't have Nickel painted on it like the other vans did. Um, The immediate meaning of this new assignment, community service, was that it allowed Elwood to pretend like his life never took a turn for the worse. Like Mm. white white America had never got him in in their claws. Mm -hmm. And it provided his first trip into the free world since his arrival at Nickel. So he was like, I don't know what we're going to do, but at least I'm free, kind of. I'm outside and I'm not at the school. Kind of. Yeah. So one day they were headed to a white woman um, along with paintbrushes and paint for a project she wanted completed. So while they painted, 
Harper went to go see some woman in town and left the boys alone. And Turner explains a few more things to Elwood. First, this is what we do. (laughs) The trading. Okay. What was this community service? It soon became clear. They were going to white owned homes, schools, even clinics and giving them the supplies intended for the schools. Not giving, selling to them. Yeah, they were making Mm -hmm. money off of that. Mostly food, but everything from medicine to pencils to toothpaste. And Elwood was like, I wonder why we all we never have toothpaste at Nickel. This is why, because they're selling it to the neighborhood. okay? to neighboring clinics again, families, even schools. Right. In exchange, Harper received money from the people who accepted the packages and Turner and Elwood received time in the free world. Okay, but this, you know, yeah, second. Back in the day, after you graduated from Nickel, they would make you work on these people's that neighborhood families land to pay off your debt. Because <laughs> they reason we had to pay to feed you, clothe you. You got to pay us that back. Wow. So you're going to be like an indentured servant mm-hmm. slash slave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just slave. Yeah. I would just say slave. And the people made those men sleep in basements mm-hmm. and eat crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to leave that situation and go back to Nickel right now. So back at the school. So we're going to leave like Turner. The situation is Turner and um, Elwood finding this pseudo peace and talking Being and out getting in to the know world. each other. Mm-hmm. And, and Elwood's so innocent and Turner's so not. So, But although he is, but he's... Um, Jaded, not jaded. He just has this more is what experience I in the situation. He's, yeah, he's more experienced. That's a better word. So he's like, he sees in Elwood a solid stand-up individual, mm-hmm. and he just don't want him to get beat and beat again like he had before. So he's yeah. gonna help him out. He's his friend now. So back at the school, the sa- the staff was preparing for the annual boxing match. Trevor Nickel, back in the day instituted the championship matches in 1946 soon after he came on as the director of the Florida industrial school for boys with a mandate for reform at clan meetings. Nickel caught everyone's ear with talk of the value of work in his heart. He was a boxing evangelist. He would loiter at the boys showers to monitor their fitness This is where the current um, psychologist at the school, Dr. Campbell, may have learned his trick because it was known that Campbell would loiter at the white boy's shower to pick his dates. As Turner says, all these dirty old men got a club together. Mm -hmm. Okay, they all know each other. The black boys had held the boxing title for 15 years. Old men on the staff still praised the last white champion, a boy who was sent to nickel for strangling 21 of his neighbor's chickens because, and I quote, they were out to get him. Yeah, poor kid. Poor kid. So mm-hmm. should he have been in, pr- what, what, what was going on there? Yeah. Seemed like he needs some other type of care. Other care, yeah. This year's contender was the school bully Griff. Okay, and there was no way to imagine he'd lose. He was a big, big, mean boy on the in the black school. Mm -hmm. He may have been a terror, but during the match, he represented every black boy in that school in one black body. So they rooted for him. Mm -hmm. One day, though, Turner, who would find like places to take a nap. I cannot emphasize enough. Turner (laughs) is not lazy. He's just intelligent. (laughs) He's just really smart. He's like, I could stay here under the threat of violence or I could like go where no one goes and take a nap and no one would even miss me. (laughs) 
<laughs> so he was doing clever. that one day. Just clever. Somebody, yeah, he was clever. Mm-hmm. And so um, he heard some talking. He's like, who's interrupting my now? Oop. And I, um, <laughs> and I it was <laughs> it was Spencer, the superintendent, telling Griff, the champion at the black school, to take a dive in the second round. And Turner was like, "I don't think Spencer's smart enough <laughs> to know what you're saying." He didn't say this, but he was just listening. Like this right. ain't gonna end well. Yeah. The day of the match, Spencer sat with the white benefactors smoking a cigar and drinking from his flask like they were at an adult boxing match. Okay, watching these children Children. fight each other. Mm -hmm. Children. The match started and only Elwood and Turner knew what was going to happen. That Griff was supposed to blow the blow it in the second round. Round one, Griff pummeled the white student. Round two. This is when he's supposed to take a fall. It looked as if the white boy was even leaving a way open for Griff to take a fall. <laughs> acting. The white boy acting at this point. Like, uh. And Griff is like, huh? <laughs> Bam. One's twos. Okay. <laughs> you Two piece and a mm, biscuit. Stop it. Okay. So Griff stood strong. But then the third round came. At the end of the match, the ref called rounds one and two to Griff and the third round to the white student. Problem was... Griff thought during the third round that they were in the second round. Okay. Oh, I missed that. That's what it was. Yeah. Okay. So they were already in the third round and he thought they were in the second round because his brains had been rattled mm-hmm. so many times. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he ran over to Spencer after the match to tell him, I thought it was the second. I thought it was the second. And Spencer was like, why are you talking to me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to kill you later. Right. Um, so that night they came and got Griff. He was never seen again. Mm. The boys all started a rumor that Griff had too much pride to throw the match. But the truth is likely that the years of getting his head bashed in stopped him from counting correctly and knowing where he was mm. all the time. Ugh. Part three, the last supper. Mistakes rarely happened at Nickel. Everything was usually kept in its place. But one day, a boy found a box of horse pills. Medicine designed to make horses vomit when they've eaten something bad. Turner, Elwood, and the rest of the boys started talking about which staff member they was going to poison. Pick one. Pick one. Who gets it? Let's dream. So, <laughs> there was a half Mexican boy in the school named Jamie. Jamie was rotated from the white campus to the black campus. Rotated because no one knew quite where to put him. Mm. Because that's how much sense race ma- makes in this country. So they would send him to the white school in the winter. But in the summer, <laughs> he would tan brown and they would be like, hey, why are you here? You're not supposed Along to Along with here? the black boys. And then the, re- the cycle would just repeat. Hey, look this up. It's crazy yeah. and true. Mm-hmm. So um, Jamie had a stutter, but he mostly didn't bother anyone. He was a very like go with the flow type of kid. Yeah. They asked Jamie, hey, Jamie, which staff member would you uh, poison with horse drugs? And he answered with no elaboration. Earl. Earl was with Period. Spencer. Earl was with Spencer when Elwood was taken to the White House back in the day. And he was close enough to Spencer to appease the boy's real desire to get Spencer, a wish they dare not speak. At this point, they're telling themselves, look, we ain't never going to do this anyway. We're never going to drug a person. We'll never have this opportunity. Because actually, we're not criminals. We're just poor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And some of us may have like stolen. So, but you know, we ain't kill. We ain't killers. 
So, yeah. So they're like, yeah, we're not actually going to do this, but let's keep fantasizing about it because it's fun. Uh, that's how they feel. Um, so they bounce the idea around like a game. Names change, except for Jamie. He, his name stays the same. Earl. It would always be Earl. Why Earl? And uh, Jamie would say he knows why. Mm hmm. He only says one name each time, Earl. Soon all the boys agree. Look, Jamie don't ever do nothing to nobody. And if he says Earl, then let's all say Earl. Yeah. <laughs> so, they, so they all just start saying Earl. <laughs> and without realizing it, they also stop asking Elwood who he would poison. Because um, it was hard to picture the Reverend Martin Luther King or Dr. Martin Luther King drugging his enemies. <laughs> and that's how they saw Elwood. Like, you know what? Let's just stop asking MLK who he going to kill because we all know. Let's leave him out <laughs> of this. He makes the game less fun mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with his principles. Um, so soon all the boys seemed to realize that they weren't going to do it. It was just it wasn't in them. And still, after a staff dinner one day, Earl is rushed to the hospital. The boy's like, oh, Jamie got him. And Jamie's like, mm -mm. <laughs> no say it wasn't me. Earl doesn't die, by the way. Mm -mm. But he is relieved of his position at Nickel. But Spencer eventually just replaces Earl with someone just as evil. Yeah. And now Elwood's thinking about a way out. He's still waiting on his lawyer. He's hoping Mr. Hill will find his letter, receive his letter and help him get out. He's still trusting his grandma to find a solution. Mm -hmm. But he's thinking, you know, there's there's ways out of nickel besides the graveyard. But then he thought of Clayton. So Clayton was routinely um, assaulted by one of the overseers of the school, a depraved white man named Freddie Rich, who was kicked out of a facility previously for pedophilia. Still, his behavior was tolerated by knowing staff at nickel. One night after suffering untold minutes and possibly hours of abuse, Clayton decided he's he's going to run away. He had a sister he loved and he'd run to live with her. Yeah. She was far. He had no idea how far in actuality. Clayton suffered the elements and hunger until on the fourth day of his run, he thought himself far enough from the school to hitch a ride. He didn't care where his ride was headed as long as it took him a couple of hours distance. Clayton was starving. He'd never gone this long without eating and didn't know how to remedy that. But miles were the most important thing. Not many cars passed and the white faces scared him, even if he was bold enough to take to the asphalt. There were no Negro drivers. Maybe Negroes didn't own cars in this part of the state. He finally forced himself to stick out his thumb when a white Packard with midnight blue trim grounded the bend. He couldn't see the driver, but Packards were the first cars he learned to recognize and he had a fondness for them. The driver was a middle-aged white man in a cream-colored suit. Of course it was a white man. How could it be otherwise in that car? He wore his blonde hair parted and had silver squares of hair at the temples. His eyes changed from blue to ice white behind his wire-framed eyeglasses depending on the sun. The man looked Clayton up and down. He beckoned the boy inside. Where you headed, boy? Clayton said the first thing that popped into his head. Richards. I don't know it, the white man said. He mentioned a town Clayton had never heard of and said that he'd take him as far as he was going. Clayton had never been in a Packard before. He rubbed the fabric next to his right thigh where the man couldn't see. It was rippled and yielding. He wondered after the maze of pistons and valves under the hood, what it'd be like to see how the good men at the plant had put it together. You live here, boy? The man asked. Richards. He sounded educated. Yes, sir. With my mom and daddy. Okay, the man said. What's your name, boy? 
Harry, Clayton said. You can call me Mr. Simmons, nodding as if they had an understanding. They drove for a while. Clayton wasn't going to speak unless spoken to and kept his lips squished to keep something stupid from flying out. Now that it wasn't his two dumb feet moving him, he got agitated and scanned for police cars, rebuked himself for not staying out of sight longer. He pictured Freddie Rich at the head of the posse holding a flashlight, the sun gleaming off the big buffalo belt buckle Clayton knew so well. The sight of it, the clatter of it on the concrete floor. The houses got closer together and the Packard eased through a short main street, the boy sinking in his seat but trying not to let the man notice. Then they were on a quiet road once more. How old are you? Mr. Simmons asked. They had just passed a closed-down ESO station, the pumps rusted to scarecrows, and a white church next to a small graveyard. The ground had settled, sending the tombstones off kilter so that the graveyard was a mouthful of rotten teeth. Fifteen, Clayton said. He realized who the man reminded him of, Mr. Lewis, their old landlord. Best pay him on the first of the month, or you're out on the street on the second. He got a queasy feeling. The boy made a fist. He knew what he'd do if the man put his hand on his leg or tried to touch his thing. He'd vowed to sock Freddie Rich in the face many times and then stood paralyzed when the time came. But this day, he felt he could actually do it, drawing strength from the free world. You in school, boy? Yes, sir. It was Tuesday. He was pretty sure he counted back. Freddie Rich liked to look him up Saturday nights. Cheaper than a dime a dance and you get more for your money. An education is important, Mr. Simmons said. It opens doors, especially for your people. The moment passed. Clayton spread his fingers on the upholstery as if palming a basketball. How many days before he got to Gainesville? He remembered the name of Bell's home, Miss Mary's, but he'd have to ask around what kind of city was Gainesville. There was a lot of this plan he had to figure out before he set things up for himself. Bell would devise secret signals and places to meet that only she knew. She was smart that way. It'd be a long time before she tucked him in again and told him the things that made it all fine, but he could wait it out if she was close. Hush now, Clayton. That's what he was thinking when the Packard rolled past the stone columns at the foot of the nickel driveway. Mr. Simmons had just retired as the mayor of Eleanor, but he remained a member of the board and kept abreast of the life of the school. Three white students on the way to the metal shop saw Clayton get out of the car but didn't know that he was the boy who ran away. And at midnight, the fan bellowed its news to the half-asleep, but that didn't tell them who was getting ice cream. And in those days, the boys didn't know that cars heading out of the school dump in the middle of the night meant that the secret graveyard had welcomed a new resident. It took Freddie Rich to bring Clayton Smith's story to the student population when he gave it to his latest boy as an object lesson. You could run and hope to get away. Some made it. Most didn't. Elwood thought of Dr. Martin Luther King's words. Throw us in jail and we'll still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children. And as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities after midnight hours and drag us out onto some wayside road and beat us and leave us half dead. And we will still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. Mm. End quote. The capacity to suffer, Elwood, all the nickel boys existed in this capacity. They breathed in it, ate in it, dreamed in it. That was their lives now. Otherwise, they would have perished. The beatings, the rapes, the unrelenting winnowing of themselves, they endured. But to love those who would have destroyed them, to make that leap, 
Elwood shook his head. What a thing to ask. What an impossible thing. Elwood at this point is one of the few boys who receives regular visits from loved ones. Mm -hmm. And his grandmother visits one day as scheduled. And she looks far away. Elwood asks, you know, what's wrong, grandma? He learns that his lawyer was a con man. He'd skipped town even after the Italian corner store owner donated 100 of his own dollars to Elwood's cause. Legal recourse seemed out of reach. Their hope was a lie. Elwood was loved. He had white people and black people who loved him and supported him, but he had no chance in the legal system. Part four, our final part. Black to the future. Oof. Fast forward years in the future, we see Elwood and he's married to a woman he loves named Millie. They live in New York. There are moments when he's abruptly reminded of the old days, like when he runs into an old peer of Nickel who overheard someone call his name. So Elwood was out and someone was like, all right, bye, Elwood. And a man turned around and was like, Elwood, it's so-and-so. And he was like, oh, hey. And then the guy was like, let's grab lunch together. Hmm. So they grab lunch. And the guy begs Elwood for a job. Elwood looks like a man who can give somebody a job at this point. But Elwood feels uncomfortable and doesn't even give the guy his card. Back in Nickel, he's thinking, when the man sitting across from Elwood was a boy, the other sp- students spotted him as weak, spotted the man as weak, and he was frequent, frequently um, sexually assaulted in closets. And when he got bigger, that boy assaulted the younger kids. Mm-hmm. And Elwood thinks, you know, you do what you're taught, but, but I can't forget that that was you. And, and you really kind of represent all the evils of nickel for me in this moment. And also I'm going to leave this lunch as soon as I can. Mm -hmm. So he's like, yeah, yeah. All right. I ain't even going to hold you. Yeah. Pass. And Elwood gets out of there. Um, yeah. We then learned that Elwood worked his way North from Florida to New York city, taking labor jobs as he rode the train. He started working for a moving company, saved his money, and is now president of his own moving company. He also earned his GED, something he always wanted to do, and he didn't. About Millie, Elwood's wife, she's his perfect match. In moments when he's dragged back into dark places in his mind, she's there for him. This piece of happiness. Um, yes. Is... Anyway, go ahead. But he's got friends, too. He's got like a life, a community, although this darkness will never leave him. One day he's standing outside of a white owned restaurant serving soul food. And he's like, whoo, <laughs> this is a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay? um, and a white hostess is prepared to seat him. And he's like, this is a white restaurant serving black food and white people wait on you. Wow. Things really change quickly with time. Um, so he's waiting outside for Millie, though. He goes back outside and he's waiting for his wife and he's still dazed by how quickly time changes things. He thinks, should I buy Millie flowers? Because he's thinking about how much he loves her. Isn't that what lovers do? He spends so much time just trying to discern what is appropriate human behavior. And this is one of those times. What should he do to show his appreciation for her? Before he can decide, she comes behind him with some sweet words, a smile, and they go into the restaurant together. As readers, we're comforted by the assurance of this future. This is not a fantasy. The author is letting us know this is how Elwood's story turns out. Yeah. 
Elwood is living well and has found a place for himself in the world. So I'm going to say some more things about Elwood. This is the author talking to us. But just know it's going to end up okay, kind of. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. I remember that. I remember that feeling like, thank you. And then as a reader, you kind of feel like, okay, I can continue with this Mm -hmm. evilness reading about this. Um, knowing that in the end, Elwood at least makes it out. But he didn't find this place in the world for himself until he made it out of Nickel. Back to the past. So we're going back into present day Elwood's life. Um, Out of his future. There were a couple of ways out, Elwood is thinking. Serving time before working as a servant for one of the local Florida families or the graveyard. But Elwood was like, I'm going to find me another way. So the school is scheduled for an inspection by big wigs and politicians, I think. And usually these these routine inspections go like this. The kids are fed actual food (laughs) and they are so happy to get. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. Actual edible food um, so that they'd act right Mm -hmm. in front of company. And the staff polish up and put their best foot forward. And a light tour is provided, minus the White House, of course. So Elwood was going to try something. It was a long shot, but he needed to try. He wrote a report about what was really going on inside of Nickel, complete with receipts. Before he works up the courage to pass this report on to an, an inspector, Harper calls him to run an errand in the opposite direction. And Elwood's like, but this is my only shot at freedom. What do I do? Always the loyal friend. Turner volunteers to hand the report off. He's like, this is dumb, but you're my friend. You're a fool for having written this, but you're solid. You're a solid guy. I'm going to hand this off to an inspector for you. Elwood hands the report to Turner, who gives it to the inspectors. I should also say that our Black to the Future part, when we're given a little glimpse into Elwood's future, we also um, are in are, we're in his mind when he's thinking, how dare this system take away my best friend? And so at this point in the book, we're, we know that Turner's going to die eventually and that Elwood's going to find a place in the world for himself. I should tell you that. So you're kind of always looking for when does Turner die? Because you really like Turner at this point because he's also a bit of comedic relief. <laughs> he is. <laughs> he he's is, comedic he relief is. in this dark story. So Elwood uh, Tur- gives Turner the report and Turner goes to hand it off to the inspector. And as a reader, I'm like, this is when he dies. That night, Elwood lays awake I was wondering. Elwood, like, yeah, they're going to find out and everything is going to be fixed. Oh, you was trusting the system. Mm-hmm. Elwood lays awake that night and wonders if Turner ever really did do as he promised. Because maybe Turner didn't turn in the report to like quote unquote, save Elwood. So he's like, man, did he do it? But he didn't have to wonder long because soon Spencer was beside Elwood at his bedside at night, ready to take him to the White House. Spencer and the new Earl beat Elwood senseless Mm. and then took him to solitary confinement. Spencer didn't know what damage the boy's letter had caused, who else had read it, who cared, what sort of repercussions rolled down from the top. Right. All he knew was that, and it's not like Elwood signed the letter, right. uh, sincerely yours, Elwood, but it was written with such intelligence. He knew it was Elwood. Smart nigger. He said, I don't know where they get these smart niggers. 
The superintendent was not his usual jolly self, even while beating Elwood senseless. But there was something about Spencer that Elwood noticed clearly. Spencer was afraid and insulted. It was demeaning one of his boys writing a letter on him. Days pass. Elwood is in solitary confinement. Weeks pass. This is a quote I have to state because um, this is something that Colson Whitehead got from an actual student of Nickel. And the quote is, the worst thing that ever happened to Elwood in this case happened every day. He woke in that room. Elwood ponders the words of Dr. Martin Luther King. Inside of him, there is a battle inside of Elwood. How can he love people who are capable of this? How could he love evil? But how could he not become evil if he refused to love? In this room, all alone in darkness, he was in a jail within a jail. Footsteps approach. The door of his cell opens. He braces himself for the worst. But Turner opens the door. And we're like, hey, Turner's yeah. alive. Everything somehow is still going to be okay. It's going and to at be. this point, I'm thinking, oh, they both going to make it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Turner had overheard. Remember, Turner is always overhearing stuff because he knows because he be in the right he be in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. So he overheard that the men were planning to kill Elwood tomorrow. We got to get out, he says. Now, back when they were running odd jobs for Harper and talking about the day they'd finally be free, Turner's number one rule was: if you run, run alone. Now he's standing in front of Elwood talking about we got to go. Mm-hmm. He was going to help Elwood escape. But why? Because Elwood was solid. He was a brother, a friend, and he was better than all of them. And Turner was not re- beyond redemption. But in Turner's words, he was helping Elwood out of nickel because Elwood is dumb and I'm stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said that. That was cute. They hopped on a pair of matching red bikes they picked up from one of the neighbor's discarded toy piles and they were off. The first time a car approached from behind, they kept their heads straight as if nothing was out of the ordinary. The sun came up and Elwood was starting to understand finally that he was heading home. But then a nickel van pulled up. Mm. The boys hopped a fence and started running as Harper's bullet flew behind them. Harper, their quote unquote friend in this place who would take them on community service errands. Elwood's arms went wide, hands out, as if testing the solidity of the walls of a long corridor, one he had traveled through for a long time and which possessed no visible terminus. He stumbled forward two steps and fell into the grass. Turner kept running. He asked himself later if he heard Elwood cry out Mm. or make any kind of sound, but never did figure it out. He was running and there was only the rush and royal of blood in his head. Mm. This is the part of the story where we as the reader learn the truth, the full truth. And so does Millie, Elwood's wife. I was at Nickel. That's the place. I told you I was in juvie, but I never said the name. Elwood, come here, she said. He sat on the couch. He hadn't served his time, as he told her years ago, but ran. Then he told her the rest, including the story of his friend. His name was Elwood, Turner said. They were on the couch for two hours, not counting the 15 minutes halfway through that she spent in their bedroom with the door closed. I have to go. I'm sorry. She returned. Her eyes rubbed red, and they picked it up. In some ways, Turner had been telling Elwood's story 
ever since his friend died, through years and years of revisions of getting it right, as he stopped being the desperate alley cat of his youth and turned into a man he thought Elwood would have been proud of. It was not enough to survive, you had to live. He'd heard Elwood's voice as he walked down Broadway in the sunlight or at the end of a long night hunched over the books. Turner walked into Nickel with strategies and hard-won dodges and a knack for keeping out of scrapes. He jumped over the fence on the other side of the pasture and into the woods, and then both boys were gone. In Elwood's name, he tried to find another way. Now, here he was. Where had it taken him? His name didn't matter. The lie was big, but she understood it. Given how the world had crumpled him up, the more she took in the story. To come out of that place and make something out of himself, to become a man capable of loving her the way he did, to become the man she loved, his deception was nothing compared to what he had done with his life. I don't call my husband by his last name, Jack, Jack Turner. No one had ever called him Jack except his mother and his aunt. I'll try it on, she said. Jack, Jack. Jack. It sounded okay to him. More true each time it came out of her mouth. They were wrung out. In their bed, she said, You have to tell me all of it. This isn't just one night. I know. I will. All his life, Turner never had someone to look up to who was also looking out for him. And that all changed when he met Elwood. So when the time came for him to find life past Nickel, it was Elwood's name that he took. Even acquiring Elwood's social security number. Elwood's grandmother was dead at this point, so there was no familial ties to offend. He became Elwood with all good-hearted intentions and sincerity and tried to live up to the name as the owner would have mm-hmm. if still alive. But satisfyingly, this book doesn't end with a man named Elwood. It ends with Jack Turner, a fully formed, successful man who is loved by a good, supportive woman. Jack Turner finds the strength to confront his demons and call out publicly the demons in the system that tried to swallow him whole and that took so much from many promising lives from the world. And I'll let you find out exactly how he did that by reading the book. The end. Woo! Child. Mm. <sighs> I feel like I ate a steak. Mm. It was good, <laughs> it's a though. a full meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good, though. All right, you ready to take a break? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. And we are back. Ah. <laughs> Honey. Oh. <laughs> Alexis, what did you think of the Nickel Boys? And would you recommend the book? What's your final verdict? I enjoyed this book. Um, the story was well told and it was well written. Just say that. It, it's hard to read about abuses. I have always been... Um, care for the children kind of person. I volunteer for a lot of um, programs that support children. So I absolutely hate hearing about the abuses of children. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. And it makes me very uncomfortable. Um, 
but he told this story so well and I feel like very respectfully that I could mm-hmm. um I could I could read it again. I could read mm-hmm. it again to look for the pieces that I missed. Um I would definitely recommend this book. Uh hearing how Elwood um Turner how mm-hmm. he truly um felt about his friend or what he learned from his experiences with Elwood, hearing him tell Elwood's story. I just, I really like the way the story was told. And Colson Whitehead did an excellent job of presenting this story, uh, reimagining, not that you want to, but sharing stories of what could have been those people at that real school, that Dozier school. Because I know... these systems that they create to kind of help and rehabilitate people. Sorry, I missed that one. I'm gonna put that back up. But help and rehabilitate people. <laughs> they're they're just they're not what they're uh, they're not what they're supposed to be. And mm-hmm. this is just like or what people say they're supposed to be because they are what they're supposed to be. Fine point, <laughs> sis. Fine point. But yeah, they're just not what they should be, could be. And it. Um, so I, I really enjoy hearing him describe it again respectfully Mm -hmm. what about you would you recommend the book um this book could have really been a downer but there was something about uh the way turner took this um took it the the way turner's story ended up that was kind of redeeming for me and it doesn't feel i know it sounds so dark um and if you've read it um, per- perhaps you feel the same way, but something about that ending was just perfection. It was. Because it was like, and looking at the cover, you see two boys and their shadow is one man. Brilliant cover, mm-hmm. which is brilliant. Um, but just knowing that Elwood kind of lives through Turner and that Turner is doing the most with his life and that there are people who love him because he's falling out with a friend. Right. But that tells me he's got friends. Right. <laughs> and and he'll never be without this darkness constantly following him. Um, but he, there is a little bit of light in that tunnel for him. And then I love the themes in the book. Uh, Do people make society or do does society make people like Turner's grown up associating dates, even the word dates with adult white men raping boys. Mm -hmm. That's what they call it. Dates on lover's lane. When he becomes an adult and Millie insists on date nights because of something she read in the magazine, he has to get used to the idea. He's like the normalcy of spending time with someone you love in a safe space. And making time for that. This is all new to let's, him. Let's, let's reframe what that word means. Okay, mm-hmm. let's do it this way. Yeah. Yep. So I love this book. I would absolutely read it again. It's the perfect um, length, too, I felt like. Uh, uh, and when it does get dark, it doesn't shy away from the truth, but it also doesn't like wallowing it. No. It's not taking pleasure in the pain. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and that's really hard to do, no doubt. So kudos to Colson Whitehead. Amazing book. I would absolutely recommend it and read it again. Yeah. And it should be ta- it should be like required curriculum. Yeah. And I'd actually like to, you know, they made a movie about it and not about this book, but about um, <laughs> oh, a, like documentary a documentary about Ooh, the I'm good. Dozier, um, school and me. I 
those things intrigue me. So I would like to listen to the documentary, but I don't think it's available. I don't, I couldn't find it. I went to IMBD and I couldn't find um, where it was available. So it might not be a thing, but I just remember the, um, the, this American life and and hearing Mm -hmm. the stories of the children there. And that was just so, you know, it's just difficult to hear them, but yet, and still I, I, um, I don't know. It, I would definitely <laughs> read this book again and I would look for you know, that doja. It reminds it reminds me of Catch and Kill when you were like, why would you read this book? And that's fair. <laughs> but it's something about these stories existing and people uh, reading them that I hope will let uh, victims of this type of abuse know that you can speak openly mm-hmm. about, you know, what you've been through. Yeah. With with judgment, because some people will try to blame the victim always. Um, but it's important that we know the truth of what's going on in, in certain spaces, especially. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that was I it. So. Um, thank you for sharing that book with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a, a, a very good read. Um, worth. Yeah. Worthy selection. I can't wait to read Harlem Shuffle mm-hmm. and the Underground, Underground Railroad. Underground Railroad. Yeah. And his whole catalog. Yeah. This was the his, <laughs> yeah. what was it? His. This was seventh book. This was the seventh book. I think so. But it's a follow up to um, Underground Railroad. Um, What are we reading next week, Kari? The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. Very nice. Very nice. Let's get into that. Well, thank you for listening to Lit Society. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Honoria and Kari Herrera. Support the yep, cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, please, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us because we love you too. Okay, can I say that? Yeah. <laughs> if you've enjoyed what you've just heard, Please tell a friend about Lit Society. Do that. Do that for us, okay? Visit <laughs> LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, readers, read, read something. something.